a pleasant Tuesday. This is Ozarks at Large for June 6th, 2023. I'm Kyle Collins. My thanks to Daniel Carruth, Anna Pope, and Timothy Dennis for producing shows last week and yesterday when I was away. It's great to be back in the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio as we continue another week of new programs. Later today, I'll turn to Anna and our colleague Pete Hartman for our next collection of recommendations. They offer everything from an animated take on Sturgill Simpson's music to a PBS-produced hip-hop documentary. Their suggestions for how we should spend our time in today's second half hour. We begin the show today with a pending trip south. Later this year, two Northwest Arkansas teachers will embark on an expedition to Antarctica. Matt Holden from Fayville High School and Brittany Berry from Helen Tyson Middle School in Springdale were both selected as Grosvenor Teacher Fellows. The program from the National Geographic Society provides professional development and field research experience for pre-K through 12th grade educators. The two educators spoke with Ozarks at Large's Daniel Carruth at the Carver Center for Public Radio last month. Can you just sort of tell me a little bit about uh, this fellowship, kind of how you heard about it, and what sort of inspired you to apply for it? The fellowship is called the Grobner Teacher Fellowship, and it's provided by the National Geographic Society and Lindblad Expeditions. Um, And it's a really unique opportunity that gives educators this experience to go aboard these Limbrad ships uh, all around the world and kind of get these hands-on experience in the field that they can bring back to the classroom. I've always dreamt of working with the National Geographic Society since I was a little kid. I've had the magazines, so it's something that really inspired me to go into science in the first place. So this is just kind of like a full circle, dream come true kind of moment. Yeah, so a lot like Matt in the initial inspiration, I can remember being um, uh, a little girl sitting in my grandparents' living room, like ruffling through their years of National Geographic, and that's kind of maybe initially my starting point on wanting to see kind of the wonders of the world. And then last year, one of my colleagues, um, Derek Ratchford at Sonora Middle School in Springdale, was able to finally do his fellowship to the Galapagos in uh was really supportive in the application process, and I'm really glad that I did it because I think Matt will say the same thing. The other 48 teachers from across the United States, uh, Puerto Rico and Canada, Mm -hmm. is that correct? Yeah, are just inspiring individuals. So I think you you think a little bit of like, man, how am I in this group of, (laughs) but uh, here we are, blessed and lucky. Yeah, and so can you talk a little bit about the expeditions that you're going on and maybe like how that process works. Like, did you get to choose where you were going to go? Was it sort of predetermined or I don't know what that looked like? Yeah, definitely. So in the application process, you're able to select kind of your priorities of which ones you would like to go to. I was actually lucky enough to choose the expedition that I'm going on to Antarctica as my first choice. Brittany will also be going on that same expedition to Antarctica just a few weeks before me in December. They do travel all around the world. There are other places like the Galapagos, different places in the Arctic, uh, Indonesia, Melanesia, all sorts of different places around the world, and looking at kind of the environmental problems that face those different areas around the world. Yeah, I think in all there's 13 different itineraries for this year's fellows. What is it that drew you to Antarctica and this expedition in particular? And, And I don't know how you hope to use the experience in the classroom or just, I don't know, to enrich your life as well? 
Uh, I think we both had kind of similar interests in why we chose this expedition or focused on it as one of our top priorities. Um, things like climate change are incredibly visible down there. We're seeing some of the biggest ice melt in Antarctica uh, than we've ever seen before. Um, we're also seeing lots of species starting to decline in their populations and becoming threatened. This is something that I focus a lot on in my class. I teach mainly biology classes, so we do a lot of work with how humans are impacting the environment and what actions uh, people in the community and my students can take to kind of counteract those. And I think this expedition will allow me to bring back more of this global perspective and show them that the problems that we face here in our community um, are also similar problems that people face around the world. The partnership between Lindblad and National Geographic is largely focused on making sure that educators have a front seat to um, leading scientific research and um, helping us bring back that amazement, that, that wonder of the wild world to our classroom and our students. We're going to have the opportunity to take lots of photographs and video. I'm planning on doing some immersive stuff, so taking a 360 camera with my students. We do 360 tours. We do podcasting, all that. So I'm going to try to do like a daily audio log while I'm down there. And, and so it's kind of like a lab for us in mm -hmm. a sense to be students. I think that's also an important part of this journey is to, to demonstrate for our students that you're never too old to explore and to continue to learn. And to be amazed. I think that's my number one thing is I want to use this experience to amaze my students and encourage their curiosity. Part of the fellowship too is after we're done with our with our expedition is to produce some deliverables. Um, not just solely for ourselves, but also to present to other teachers in other classrooms. And I think Matt hit on something really important, which is the the core mission of National Geographic to promote storytelling. They've produced a wonderful series of professional development for teachers. I'm working myself through it right now, and there's stuff on audio and video production and graphic design. And it's all about helping to use your local environment, your, your local people and places, and to engage students in the process of telling stories that will promote positive change. And so what better way but to go on this experience and, and be the producers of that. And then I'm planning to do a whole unit on storytelling with my students next year in the concept that all global issues have a, have a local part mm -hmm. to it. Yeah. And do you know kind of what things you'll be doing while you're on the expedition and um, maybe leading up to it if there are any like courses or things you have to take? Yes, so uh, Brittany and I participated in a pre-expedition workshop in April in Washington, D.C. at the National Geographic headquarters uh, where we got to meet with all of the other 48 fellows, learn about uh, their background and their expertise and their experiences and really become inspired by all of these other educators um, and then kind of get an overview of what uh, our expedition may look like. So kind of aboard these vessels, these research ships will be uh, basically guests aboard these ships. Um, there are paying travelers aboard these ships as well. They also have uh, photographers and naturalists aboard the ships that will um, kind of be leading us on our off-board activities. We'll go off on what are called zodiacs. Um, they're kind of like, um, kind of like blow-up watercrafts, um, and we'll take those off uh, embark onto the continent and then get to learn all about the wildlife down there, the environment down there, and then the threats that are affecting that as well. 
Yeah. So we'll both leave here um, and spend some time in Buenos Aires, Argentina before. Um, and then the experience, it'll just be, I mean, it's kind of cool when people ask, like, how do you get there? And I'm like, well, <laughs> first it's a plane and then a smaller plane and then a a small boat and then a bigger ship. So it's kind of you're just working your way further and further south. Um, we'll travel through the Drake Passage which could be anywhere from a nice calm couple up to five feet of water to 15 feet plus. Uh, mm. uh, yeah, nausea medication <laughs> suggested. Um, and then we'll have about 10 to 11 days to be on the ship in uh, Antarctica and to offboard into certain places and then ride the Zodiacs and kayak and hopefully see penguins and whales and seals and all other sorts of aquatic and land life. When we talk about these subjects and this expedition, I guess, on a bigger scale, it seems like, oh, well, that doesn't impact us here in Fayetteville, Arkansas or Springdale. Um, but it does. And kind of how do you break that down um, and make it important for students and for even people in the community, parents of those students, um, to make this relevant to their life, issues like climate change? Mm -hmm. Um, I like to provide kind of specific examples of that. Um, one thing that I plan to do on my expedition um, is take some samples that focus on microplastic pollution. I do have a big microplastic uh, unit with my students where they go out and take samples through multiple bodies of water. Um, so they're able to see how those same issues not only affect them here and see that relevance in their lives, but how it can be relevant to people all around the world and in different areas. Um, another way I plan on making the experience really relevant for my student is we're, we're going to discuss the trip before. I'm going to let them write a lot of guiding questions that I'm going to try to answer as I go in my recordings. So they're, they're going to give me the topics and I'm going to report on them as we go to engage them in the process. I think that there's also in terms of both for the students and for the parents in the community, a relevancy in terms of, um, careers, hoping to really provide some materials and focus on um, what does it take to become a naturalist? What does it take for international travel? I just think there's so many opportunities, too, to bring the world, the experience itself, I think, as a learning tool as well for students. And then is there anything about this specific expedition that you're, I don't know, excited about or you, you keep sort of thinking about that you're, oh, that seems like it's going to be fun? Even though I might get seasick, I'm very excited to go across the Drake Passage. I think that's going to be something incredible to see that part of the world and see the ocean in kind of its most volatile state. And then I'm also just incredibly excited to see all the different wildlife. Um, my go-to wildlife that I really want to see would be a blue whale, since it's the largest animal ever to live, and I think that would be just amazing. I'm really interested in the people portion of it, I think is something we haven't talked about. Um, the other guests on board are bound to be really interesting, fascinating people who have chosen this, hoping to learn from them. And I'm hoping to also allow them to learn from us and what's happening in our classrooms and what our students are doing. I think it's an important conversation to have about what it means to be a public school teacher, what it means to work in a public school, what it means to be a student these days. Mm -hmm. I think it'll be a great way to advocate for what we do and Definitely. what our kids do. So I think that's a key piece that I'm really looking forward to. Yeah, and I, speaking of the human piece, uh, I don't know if you've gotten a chance to really talk with some of the other uh, teachers who are going on some of these expeditions, uh, but how has that been, if you have been able to talk to them, 
how's getting to know them and maybe like broadening your perspective on on being a, what it means to be a teacher in the U.S. kind of as a whole or, you know, in North America as a whole right now? Yeah, I think we met teachers from Canada who lead aquatic programs where kids spend a week or two weeks out on water learning as field-based experiences. A teacher in Corpus Christi, Texas, who runs a whole uh, ocean aquatics program where all kids from that school district go out and kayak in their wetlands and explore. It both affirms some of my practices and that, yes, we are all out there doing the good stuff, and it also provided me a lot of opportunities. And I think it provides you with some fuel to keep going because sometimes it's hard. Teaching is not the easiest, and <laughs> um, and so in some ways it just continues to get a little bit harder. And so to be in a community of 50 people who are expanding and caring and trying, it was really affirming. Mm-hmm. Nice. All right. Well, that's pretty much what I had for you guys. Was there anything that you wanted to add or say or, or think people should know? Uh, I think everyone should go ahead and subscribe to National <laughs> Geographic so you feel inspired um, to make these changes because what you do, the actions you can t- you take, uh, can make huge differences throughout the world, even if you don't realize that. To any educators out there that Matt and I would love to, if you if you're listening and you're like I want to do that, we would more than happy to help anyone. Uh, the application process I'm trying to remember was it December? About December when they'll put out next year's fellowship application. There are many additional programs, both locally, regionally, state, nation, world, where teachers can travel and experience things that they can bring back to their classroom. And I would say it is a mutually beneficial experience and I'm double thumbs up. So <laughs> keep learning. Yeah. And is there a way, cause I know, I don't know what the Wi-Fi will be like out there, but is there a way for people to follow you guys maybe along on your, on your journey? I plan on doing something similar to Brittany, t- making um, kind of like a podcast, um, uh, like a daily journal almost that I'll share with my students so they can kind of uh, stay up to date with everything that I'm doing. And then also they can follow me on personal social media accounts and things like yeah. that as well. So. And early next spring, we would love to come back. Yes. Yeah. And uh, maybe by then we'll have something more produced that we can share out with people a direct access to, but also just share mm-hmm. what, what blew our minds. Exactly. I think it's going to be amazing. All Super right. excited. Looking forward to that. Well, Matt, Brittany, congratulations. And thanks so much for talking with us. Matt Holden, a teacher in the Fayetteville School District, and Brittany Berry, an educator at Helen Tyson Middle School in Springdale, speaking with Ozarks at Large's Daniel Carruth. The two teachers were selected for the 2023 National Geographic Grosvenor Fellowship Program, and they'll travel to Antarctica later this year. By the way, Daniel conducts his interviews in the Karen Taha News Studio. Still to come this hour, there's been plenty of conversation lately about increasing affordable housing in northwest Arkansas. But what kind of action can help make that a reality? So that's where we've seen the most action so far at the state level is, for example, a state legislature and governor coming in and saying, across our whole state, homeowners are going to be allowed to add an accessory dwelling unit. On the latest episode of I Am Northwest Arkansas, host Randy Wilburn moderates a conversation about housing. And we'll hear an excerpt later on today's Ozarks at Large. The third annual Her Set, Her Sound Festival is back June 9th and 10th at West and Watson and Prairie Street Live in Fayetteville. 
Her set, her sound takes up space to celebrate identity and empower women and non-binary DJs in our region. Guests can enjoy food trucks, vendors, and entrepreneurs, plus groovy vibes and activations to amplify her on and off the stage. Tickets and sponsorship information available at hersethersound.com. Our partners at Talk Business and Politics are bringing back the Compass Report, an independent analysis of economic activity in Arkansas's four largest metro areas. The report started in 2009 as a measure of the Fort Smith economy, expanded and continued until 2017. The revitalized edition, created with the University of Arkansas Fort Smith, will launch with an economic report of the first quarter of 2023 later this week at talkbusiness.net. And speaking of partnerships, KUAF and the Shiloh Museum of Ozark History are presenting the next installment of the Not Strictly History series. It's tomorrow night at the museum in downtown Springdale. Danny Baskin will share his expertise in woodworking, focusing on refurbishing and utilizing historic tools, as well as his process for creating historically inspired period furniture. He'll also discuss various traditional woodworking techniques and provide demonstrations. The event is free. It starts at 6.30 tomorrow night at the Shiloh Museum, and it can also be viewed for free via Zoom. More details at shilohmuseum.org. For the Central Arkansas Library System, I'm Mark Chris with an Encyclopedia of Arkansas Minute. Arkansas has been a fly-fishing mecca for generations. While chroniclers of Hernando de Soto's expedition mentioned systems of marsh ponds and canals for containing fish at Native American villages, it was in the 1920s and 30s that fly fishing caught on big in northern Arkansas, with out-of-state anglers converging at Norfolk to fish the North Fork and Buffalo Rivers for bass. The Shakespeare Company began producing fiberglass fishing rods in the late 40s and moved its real production to Fayetteville in 1965, where it remained for 17 years. The Wapsi Fly Company came from Iowa to Mountain Home in 1978, making flies until production moved overseas, but remaining one of the largest fly material suppliers in the world. Both the Game and Fish Commission and fly fishers stocked streams with trout in the 1970s, and Howard Rip Collins caught a 40-pound, 4-ounce brown trout on the Little Red River that remained a record for 17 years. To learn more, visit encyclopediaofarkansas.net. This is Ozarks at Large. A third attempt to get a proposed repeal of the Arkansas Learns Act in front of voters is moving forward. Arkansas Attorney General Tim Griffin is approving ballot language submitted by Citizens for Arkansas Public Education and Students, or CAPES. Two previous submissions had been repealed by the Attorney General. Now the group must collect more than 54,000 valid signatures from registered voters representing at least 50 counties by the end of July. Arkansas Learns, a sweeping education reform package championed by Governor Sanders, was passed by the Arkansas legislature earlier this year. That legislation includes pay raises for many teachers and an expanded voucher system. Chief Chuck Hoskin Jr. will serve another four-year term as principal chief of the Cherokee Nation after earning well more than 50% of the vote in a four-person race yesterday. His running mate, Brian Warner, was elected deputy chief. It will be the second term for Hoskin. Roughly 72,000 Arkansans have lost Medicaid coverage as the State Department of Human Services begins reassessing eligibility of enrollees. States put cancellations on pause during the COVID-19 public health emergency, but since April are once again able to suspend Medicaid coverage for ineligible residents. Loretta Alexander, Health Policy Director at Arkansas Advocates for Children and Families, says over 44,000 Arkansans lost coverage simply for not returning a renewal form to DHS. There was another 7,600 people that failed to return requested information. 
So let's say if they sent you some more information saying, okay, tell us more about what we need to know in order to finalize your approval, and you didn't get those forms back in, then that leaves those folks uncovered too. Alexander says even if parents are no longer receiving Medicaid coverage, children might still be eligible. Let's say if you were in, um, you were in the Our Home or Arkansas Works category, and then your income went up a little bit too high for you to be qualified anymore, because the income level for Our, for our Home is, is 138% of poverty. Well, then Our Kids B goes up to 200% of poverty. So those kids may go from Our Kids A to Our Kids B. But they still be eligible for Medicaid under, under, the, under the, the guidelines if, if the parents' income goes up just a little bit higher. According to DHS, roughly 29,000 children have lost Medicaid coverage since April. More information on Medicaid enrollment available online at access.arkansas.gov. Shea Lewis is the interim director of Arkansas's Department of Parks, Heritage, and Tourism. He replaces Mike Mills. Mills' departure from the position was announced by Governor Sanders' office Friday afternoon. No official reason was given for the move. Mills, the founder and owner of Buffalo Outdoor Center in Ponca, was named to the office in December. Lewis, the current director of Arkansas State Parks, will serve as interim director of Parks, Heritage, and Tourism until a permanent secretary is named. A City of Fayetteville ban on retail sale of pets targeting mass breeders who operate puppy mills passed last year but is not yet in effect. The ban was stalled due to a court challenge and now has been rescinded because of a new state law. Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich explains. Act 730, recently approved by Arkansas's legislature, prohibits cities and counties from regulating the sale of animals bred in kennels, catteries, or by dealers, including those who operate puppy mills for profit. Justine Lentz serves as Fayetteville's Animal Services Superintendent. Fayetteville City Council did, you know, take a stand and try to do our part to, you know, bring to light what terrible conditions puppy mills are, um, and so people can be more educated about it. Fayetteville's ordinance was enacted when Ohio-based pet store chain Petland was preparing to open a store in Fayetteville. The Humane Society of the United States cites Petland as the largest retailer of puppy mill dogs in the country and the only national pet store in the U.S. that continues to sell puppies. Instead, Justine Lentz encourages the public to consider adopting a shelter dog or cat. Right now, we are probably experiencing the highest volume of dogs available that we've had since well before the pandemic. So, you know, these dogs are also dogs that have been seen by vets. They've been spayed or neutered. They're fully vaccinated. Of an estimated 16 animal shelters in northwest Arkansas, nearly all are no-kill facilities. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich. The Arkansas Razorback baseball season is over. Arkansas was eliminated from the NCAA tournament yesterday at Baumwalker Stadium by TCU 12-4. The Razorbacks end the season 43-18. TCU will now face Indiana State in the Super Regional Round. And a pair of Arkansas Razorback football players from the late 1970s are on the latest College Football Hall of Fame ballot. Leotis Harris and Dan Hampton first-team All-Americans in 1977 and 78, respectively, are up for consideration among a total of 78 players. Inductees will be announced in early 2024.
This is Ozarks at Large. Conversations about affordable housing in northwest Arkansas are common. Not as common, more affordable housing. For his latest episode of I Am Northwest Arkansas, host Randy Wilburn shares a recent public discussion about possible ways to increase affordable housing throughout the region. Randy moderated the discussion as part of the Future Is Now speaker series presented by the Northwest Arkansas Council. It was recorded in front of an audience. Randy's co-panelists included Emily Hamilton, an economist at George Mason University in Washington, D.C., and Matthew Petty, the CEO of Pattern Zones and a former Fayetteville City Council member. Randy asked Emily Hamilton about state legislatures that are enacting laws and requirements intended to increase affordable housing, including legislatures recently in Washington and Montana. She says these new maneuvers are different because, until recently, affordable housing crises were commonly thought to be in a few coastal locations. But in the the past decade or so, we're seeing increasing affordability problems in all parts of the country. Northwest Arkansas, you mentioned Montana, a state that has um, historically been relatively accessible to people at a broad range of income levels. But in recent years, much like this area, has just seen an explosion in house prices due to a big increase in demand for housing and not enough housing being built to keep up with that. So what we've seen there is the governor, Governor Gianforte, really went into this legislative session with a housing focus and said, we are going to do something to improve housing abundance and affordability across the whole state. And coming out of his initiative, four important bills look like they're on their way to passage there to increase opportunities for more and less expensive housing to be built, uh, ranging from accessory dwelling units up to allowing uh, multifamily housing to be built in the state's commercial zones, like some localities here have done as well. And what we've seen from other states that have been experimenting with this approach is that in some cases, states have taken the lead with, with state legislators and governors setting new rules that limit the extent to which their localities can limit housing construction. But these rules work best when they have a willing partner in their localities. Uh, California has the longest history with state-level policy intended to make it easier to build housing because they've had the longest-standing affordability problems. But what we see is that in parts of the state where localities have, for example, embraced accessory dwelling units, they're being built in large numbers and successfully improving housing affordability. But where localities aren't on board with that agenda, it can still be really hard to build them. So it's really a partnership across the public sector, across the private sector, states and localities that all need to be working in the direction of legalizing less expensive housing construction. Yeah. And Matthew, you want to add anything to that? I think one of the main points that I appreciate most from what you said, Emily, is the notion of partnership. Whether we're looking at Arkansas or other states or cities and towns here or in other states, what I've seen in my work is that As much as leaders, whether they're employers, government leaders, or community leaders, if they want to do the right thing, even if they put all of their resources at their disposal into it, cities and towns everywhere still need help from the states in order to actually adequately address this problem. Yeah. So it certainly is a, it is, there is a process that is involved that everybody needs to be aware of. And I think 
if nothing else, the takeaway here for a lot of the people listening is that you need to have a better understanding of the procedures that take place at the state level as well as at the local level, because I think there can be confusion. Yes, there's absolutely, there's tons of confusion about the procedures, really in the full stack of how housing gets developed, from how laws actually get created and rewritten, but also to just the normal everyday complaints that we hear about how hard it is to get things permitted and how permitting needs to be easier. And so these um, these are challenges that when you start to inventory them and add them all up together, it becomes really apparent that there isn't one solution that we could just all get consensus around and implement it and it would fix these issues. It's a wicked problem. There are a lot of things that we're gonna have to implement in order to address this, whether we're just trying to address it in one of our cities and towns, statewide or across the country. Emily, you talked about, you wrote a brief, a policy brief back in July of 22 called Housing Reform in the States, a menu of options for 2023. And we're gonna make sure that everybody here gets a copy of this policy brief, as well as a presentation that Emily had put together which I think will kind of visually crystallize for you some of the challenges that localities across the country, including Northwest Arkansas, are facing when it comes to creating more affordable housing availability. But in this particular policy brief, you kind of outlined a number of things that lawmakers around the country could consider in their upcoming legislative sessions. And there were five categories, and I'd love for you just to talk about those categories. The first was direct limits on local regulations, such as those laws discussed, streamlining procedures. You also mentioned fiscal innovations and narrowing the scope of zoning authority. And then the final one was updating construction standards. Mm -hmm. So I'd love for you maybe just to kind of start with direct limits on local regulation and how that plays into this whole process of building affordable housing. Sure. So that's where we've seen the most action so far at the state level is, for example, a state legislature and governor coming in and saying, across our whole state, homeowners are going to be allowed to add an accessory dwelling unit. So that might be a backyard cottage or converting a garage into an apartment or a basement apartment, just giving the right to homeowners to use their property in a little bit different way, providing housing for perhaps a family member or to rent out as an additional source of income. That's the the most proven area because it's had the the most experience with with state-level intervention where these limits that just tweak the authority that local governments have to restrict housing supply can, can be rolled back just slightly to allow a little bit more housing to be built. And going beyond accessory dwelling units, we've seen state bills introduced that would set limits on lot size requirements in places that are are served with adequate infrastructure to support small lot development. Some states have allowed single family zones to accommodate between two and four units rather than exclusively single family development. And then, as I mentioned, in Montana, there's a new statewide policy allowing apartments to be built in areas that were previously zoned exclusively for commercial development. And that can make a ton of sense. And it's something that we've seen localities in northwest Arkansas already adopting is allowing their commercial zones to also accommodate 
residential. So if, for example, we see a strip mall that's experiencing high vacancy and is, is no longer serving the community very well, it can be a real win-win to allow that site to be repurposed when it's no longer generating a lot of, of tax revenue. It might be becoming a blight because it's vacant and creating opportunities for people to live in places that already have all that infrastructure in place. Yeah. And you actually mentioned earlier, you spoke specifically of Bentonville and their move to put multifamilies in commercial zones. Did you have a chance to look closely at that and how that came about? Yeah. So that has, is a reform that is intended to, to do just that, to open up sites in Bentonville where there is relatively ill-used commercial space and to create an opportunity for much-needed multifamily housing to be built. Where I live in Northern Virginia, there's been a really big experiment with this, particularly in Tysons in Fairfax County, Virginia, which is an area that was built out with office parks and retail car dealerships, almost entirely commercial use that had fallen on hard times over decades. I was experiencing increased office and retail vacancy. And they have allowed lots and lots of multifamily housing to be built there, creating opportunities for people to live in a, a very opportunity area in a type of housing that just wasn't allowed uh, prior to these reforms. Matthew, I want to ask you, how does this whole, and I'd, I'd love for you just to kind of quickly explain pattern zones for our listeners, as well as the audience here. I'd love for you just to kind of elaborate on how pattern zones and what you've come up with you know, perfectly helps out or supports these efforts that we just talked about. Sure. You know, in my time in Fayetteville, I was really honored to be part of the team that helped create some of those new laws around ADUs and the like and, and allowing uses to mix. And in continuation of that, you know, we have a personal theory that we subscribe to, which is housing is an old challenge. It's well known now. It's happening almost everywhere in metros that are growing. And we've also tried to address housing with regulations in a lot of different ways as, as a nation. And we have the recognition that none of those ways have worked. And that means we have to try new things. And so in that spirit, we would try to do new things with ADUs and building upon those examples of success. What I work on now is a novel technique. There are about a dozen programs like this across the country. We're one of the firms along with a handful of others that are doing programs like this. And what we help cities do is pre-approve buildings for construction. And right now, there's an interesting statistic that only 2% of residential buildings in the country are actually worked on by an architect. And we have a saying that we say bad design can ruin good ideas for the public. And oftentimes what happens when you look at different cities and different towns that are trying new things is the theory underlying the ideas might actually be pretty sound. But the way that they get implemented can be in fits and starts, it can create a discontent, not just among builders, but also if the quality is poor in the end results, it creates a discontent among the public and the neighbors and the residents and really delegitimizes these programs. And so our idea to pre-approve buildings and to, and to help cities pre-approve high quality buildings gets at this from a couple of important perspectives. One, of course, we all know permitting, even for good projects that we're all enthusiastic about, is getting slower everywhere every year. 
that's a trend that has to be reversed. And none of the old solutions for housing or for zoning can do that. We have to have something new. The other issue is that when we write laws and we try to justify them, we, we try to write defensible laws and present them to the public, to stakeholders, we're asking people to interpret a legal paragraph or a legal page, and it's ripe for misunderstanding at the least, outright misinterpretation or even misapplication once it's implemented. But when you pre-approve a building, that process looks entirely different because now we can hold up a 3D model, we can present a rendering, the plans that are actually going to be pre-approved in a community. It upends the normal conversation that conversations that communities struggle with whenever they're trying to decide how will they implement the vision that they share for their own neighborhoods. Matthew Petty is the CEO of Pattern Zones and a former member of the Fayetteville City Council for more than 12 years. We also heard the voice of Emily Hamilton, an economist at George Mason University in Washington, D.C. They talked with Randy Wilburn, host of the podcast I Am Northwest Arkansas, as part of the Northwest Arkansas Council's The Future Is Now speaker series. The full discussion can be heard in this week's episode of I Am Northwest Arkansas, and you can find links to materials discussed at IamNorthwestArkansas.com. KUAF's Listening Lab is now open. The Listening Lab is a space for honest and intimate conversations to better understand our neighbors and ourselves and is made possible by the Walmart Foundation. This month, for Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month in May, the lab welcomed Ari, Abdullah, Lucas, Saad, Aisha, and Fawn, who shared with us their experiences living, working, and going to school in America. I've never really found it really difficult to kind of like balance out my identities or whatnot, because if you explain yourself to most people, they're extremely understanding, and of course they get it. At first, they see you as an outsider, but once you explain yourself, everyone's typically pretty accepting here. You can hear more from The Listening Lab this week on KUAF. To learn more about the lab and schedule your visit, go to KUAF.com slash the dash listening dash lab. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Kyle Kellams inside the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio, two of KUAF's best. We won't tell anybody else I said that. Uh, Pete Hartman, who is operations manager, and a Pope, who is our growth and impact reporter. Impact reporter <laughs> at Ozarks at Large. That sounds better than operations manager. Do you think? I don't know. I'm not good at growth, so it's probably better. <clears throat> uh, you're both here, though, to uh, something we do occasionally on Ozarks at Large is because there's so much out there between online and film and books and theater. We turn to people I work with to ask for recommendations about what you've enjoyed recently. It could be new. It could be just something you think people should enjoy. Pete, how many recommendations you got with you? I actually have three, but now that you kind of say, oh, no, whatever, I'm going to, I'm good. <laughs> okay. And Anna, you, you, you're ready? I have a list, yeah. Okay. What's your first recommendation? Oh, my goodness. Well, so I've been trying to think about all of the things that I've personally enjoyed here recently. And I think one of the things that I've uh, loved and got a lot of information out of, it's called Fight the Power, How Hip Hop Changed the World. 
It's from PBS. It's a documentary. It's a series. And to me, it was just something that I enjoyed. I love documentaries in general, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, especially PBS. I grew up watching them. I still watch them. But this was one of those things that I could not wait for the next episode to come out. I was excited to, you know, after work was done or, you know, it was Friday, whatever. I had some downtime. Uh, This was one of those things that I really enjoyed watching and got a lot of out got a lot of information out of fight the power mm-hmm. how hip-hop changed the world yes Pete um, I uh, discovered something recently about a month ago number one discovered Sturgill Simpson great singer-songwriter I, I, I think I fought getting to know anything about him because the first person who ever said anything to me was oh he's a country star mm. so I'm I was slow to get to him and the way I found him was, I guess, in 2019, he made a album. And it had to be a concept album, but it's an album. Yes, it it's is. It's called yeah. Sound and Fury. Yeah. And the way I came about it, on Netflix, there is was a, what he did or they did or someone did. What I heard was he cut the album. He flew to Japan with this album. I, I don't know if this is true, but this is what I heard. <laughs> and he went to different animators and artists and said, listen to this. And what can we do? So I think the album is 47 minutes, and there is a thing on Netflix called Sturgill Simpson Sound and Fury. It's the album, and there is 47 minutes of animation behind it. You would, okay, so when I listen to it alone without the animation, I get a whole different thing. But then I watch this thing, and it, it does go with it, but I will say it's its own story by itself. To me, it is. Now, I've also got to say, there's, uh, it's for, it's an adult thing. Okay. There's nudity, there is some violence. But it's just one of the neater things I've ever seen. It was, it, and then the music is really good. Sturgill Simpson, the animated version Sound on Netflix. Sound and Fury on Netflix, yeah. And maybe I misunderstood, but it kind of seems like this is whatever I want it to be. That, no, you understood perfectly. <laughs> the next thing that's really kind of got me going is, so in 2020, the Mars Perseverance rover landed on Mars, and if you may remember, this had a helicopter attached to it. Ingenuity, they called this helicopter. Okay. Okay. So in 2020, it lands. So this rover's on Mars, and rover's it has a helicopter. on Mars. It has a helicopter, I believe, is actually underneath it. It drops it, moves out of the way. Helicopter kind of unfolds and everything. Okay. This thing was planned for, if it even lifted off the ground, one flight. Two days ago, completed, like, I believe it's 30th flight. It's been going for two years in what they thought something that might not even work. I hope there's a camera on it. There is no camera on the Mm. copter. Perseverance has gotten both video and still shots of it flying by. Incredible, right? Okay, that alone, just incredible. This one I find amazing. It is carrying, not Perseverance, the copter itself, Mm -hmm. has a piece of the 1903 Wright Flyer, a piece of the cloth from that plow. So... From 1903 to 2023, that's uh, whatever that is. 120 years. To think that we went from, what was it, 12 feet at most they gave it above the ground for a couple yeah. minutes, to now we're flying things on other planets. How do you top that? I can't. <laughs> that's very original. I can't yeah. top that. Wow. Well, and I do have, man, I think I'm looking at my list here and it's just a hodgepodge of things that I've been enjoying here recently. But I think uh, one thing that I've personally enjoyed is 
trying to read some more books for pleasure. Mm-hmm. And uh, one's good. Oh, I can't top helicopters. But uh, they're just, they're two books and they're really, I don't know, they've had an impact on me. And one is called Women's Lives. It's an anthology of women's work. So it includes works from uh, Sylvia Plath, Maya Angelou. It's, ah. it's, an, it's a true anthology. And if you're a true nerd, you like a good anthology. But uh, this one I got, you know, uh, it was dirt cheap at some at a at a books at a secondhand bookstore, and it's really cool. It's it's neat for inspiration, I think, especially looking at female writers and different things along those lines. And then another one um, that I think is interesting is called Man Killer. It's a chief and her people. It's about uh, Wilma Man Killer, yes. the first female chief of the Cherokee Nation, and uh, it's all about her life, and it's incredibly interesting. My third and final official. Uh, thing again it's kind of I don't know it's just something that maybe kind of more blows me away than than is entertaining but I think that is entertaining to me to get absolutely um so the fruit fly is quite possibly the most studied animal ever in the history of us studying animals okay so we should know just about everything that's going on there just less than a month ago so a new organelle was found in the cells of fruit fly guts. And of course, organelle is just kind of a term of something inside of a cell that is doing something. It's a, so a brand new thing they find in the most studied thing that us as humans maybe have studied. So it stores phosphate and it kind of releases phosphate when it's needed. Anyway, so it's just one of the most studied things we've ever done. And yet, less than a month ago, we found something that we absolutely didn't know existed mm-hmm. within the cells of that thing. And so more than that, what it did was kind of made me think, and I instantly go to the unexplored oceans, just the things we don't right. know that are here and that possibly we may never know. Mm-hmm. What else, Anna? Well, Recommendations. so we're, I'm kind of pivoting to like uh, it's – it's spring, summer, high warm weather time. Kind of warm weather time. Yes. I think one thing that I have thoroughly enjoyed growing up and then now as I'm in an apartment mm-hmm. and every by myself, it's one of those things that I dearly miss. And that's just being outside and doing yard work, gardening. It was always something that uh, you know my my family and I would do together, whether we were forced or willing. It was one of those things that we just did, but it was a priority to always do that. And plus, uh, we we are just a bunch of people who like to dig in the dirt. Mm-hmm. And so I think uh, it's m- m- a recommendation, but more or less an encouragement as well. Um, you know, it's. It's something that you can tend to. I have pots outside of my apartment, but, um, you know, you can go and get a cheap plant uh, for whatever and have herbs and everything along those lines that you can use and reuse and reuse. And it's something that you can tend to just something. This is what I'm going to call to urge people to get outside and touch grass. Mm. You know, you need to (laughs) sometimes it's okay to weather or uh, I just think that um, I don't know. I think that it's a calming activity and it's uh, makes your outside of your house, apartment, place of living, your dwelling, look beautiful. I will quickly say there are two television shows that I think are worth seeing. Uh, One is called Unstable. It's on Netflix. It is Rob Lowe. And I will say, I will offer this. It is good, not great. It is an easy watch. He is an Elon Musk type inventor, though much more likable. His son 
comes back to work for him. And if you liked Rob Lowe as Chris Traeger on Parks and Rec, it's kind of an extension of this character. Again, I would say it's a good show, not great. One that I think is great is called Single Drunk Female. It is on Hulu. It originally airs on Freeform, and it's about a young woman who's mid to late 20s. And her, it's a sitcom. It has, it's funny, but it's about her journey through sobriety. She loses her job. I'm not giving anything away because it happens in the first five minutes of the first episode because of her drinking. And she has to move back in with her mother, who's played by Ali Sheedy, wonderfully. And it is warm and it is unflinching, but it's also funny. It's just started its second season on Hulu, Single Drunk Female. Very cool. Sweet. Thank you both for coming in. Yeah, well, next time you. I'll understand the assignment and do better. Yeah, you make someone have like a theme, maybe. No, you did wonderfully. <laughs> this is exactly what I wanted. Thank you. This is Ozarks at Large. 2023 marks KUAF's 50th year broadcasting in northwest Arkansas and the surrounding area. We're with you every day, all year long, bringing you vitally important news, entertainment, conversations, and local programs and podcasts that keep us informed and up-to-date on life and culture throughout our region. As we approach the end of our financial year, we're raising funds to keep KUAF stronger than ever. Your gift before the end of this month will help us toward our goal of raising an extra $50,000 for the month. Your gift will help pay for the programs, the reporting, equipment, and technology that we need to continue bringing you the radio you rely on every day. You can support KUAF right now and help us end our fiscal year as strong as ever. You can give online in the amount of your choosing at supportkuaf.com. Tomorrow on a Wednesday, Ozarks at Large, we continue our series about Latina leaders in Northwest Arkansas. So what we have to do is continue the education process, and that is not just formal education. Yes, we need to continue to encourage Latinas to access higher education, formal education, you know, to continue to earn those degrees, because although you don't see an immediate return in terms of financial compensation, sometimes it's those degrees that get you in the door. Right. But also informal education in terms of educating Latinas to the realization that we can pursue these leadership roles, visible leadership roles at all levels in every sector across the United States and globally. We'll continue sharing episodes of the podcast Inspirado El Futuro, stories about Latina leaders in northwest Arkansas on tomorrow's Ozarks at Large. That's at noon and 7 p.m., on 91.3 KUAF. And you can catch up with all of our episodes by subscribing to the Ozarks at Large podcast wherever you already get your podcasts. The third annual Her Set, Her Sound Festival is back June 9th and 10th at West and Watson and Prairie Street Live in Fayetteville. Her Set, Her Sound takes up space to celebrate identity and empower women and non-binary DJs in our region. Guests can enjoy food trucks, vendors, and entrepreneurs, plus groovy vibes and activations to amplify her on and off the stage. Tickets and sponsorship information available at hersethersound.com. 
Happy birthday, Rogers, Arkansas. The city was founded on this date in 1881. A big celebration of the 142nd anniversary comes Thursday afternoon and evening with this month's Art on the Bricks Art Walk throughout downtown Rogers. There will be art inside and out with a concentration on art inspired by the city, its people, structures, and surroundings. The Art Walk is scheduled to last from 4.30 to 7.30 p.m. Thursday. There will also be live music downtown on the Butterfield stage and at the Artists of Northwest Arkansas ANA Gallery. You can find out more at rogerslowell.com. To become a world champion in freediving, Tanya Streeter learned to breathe like this. Yeah, what is that? <laughs> That's called packing. Ideas about air, breath, and breathing. <sighs> Next time on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. The TED Radio Hour, Sunday afternoon at 1 on 91.3 KUAF. Just a couple more things before we leave you on this Tuesday afternoon. The rock duo Shovels and Rope coming back to Fayetteville this autumn. They're bringing an acoustic tour to George's Majestic Lounge on Dixon Street Sunday night, October 15th. The tour, called the Bare Bones Tour, was announced this morning and will kick off in Charleston, South Carolina in late September, 16 dates total. According to an accompanying press release, tickets for the show's Go on sale Friday. Also returning to Fayetteville, John Fulbright. He's kicking off the Gully Park Concert Series Thursday night at 7, but we suggest you arrive a bit earlier if you want to sit close to the stage. He'll also perform Friday at the Coda Concert House in Joplin. Gully Park Show, free. Joplin Show is a suggested minimum donation-type performance. 100% of the proceeds going to the artist and the band. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and Charleston. KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Contributors to the show today included Daniel Carruth, Jacqueline Froelich, Randy Wilborn, and Mark Christ. My appreciation to my KUAF co-workers, Anna Pope and Pete Hartman, for offering recommendations today. Further material, further material for today's show provided by our colleagues from the newsroom at KUAR, Public Radio for Little Rock and Central Arkansas. Our membership director at KUAF is Brett Ratliff. He's in the Alexander Bogle Development Office every day, making sure your support of KUAF is all straight. You can contribute to your public radio station, become a sustaining member at KUAF, supportkuaf.com. I'm Kyle Kellums. Thanks for being with us.